1: And right now, here he is, the one, the only, Dr. History. Good
0: morning, Zeb. Sir. This, the roads are slick, so I'm calling in instead of driving out today. All right, my friend, go ahead. All right. Well, Zeb, as you think about the uh, Old West. Is there certain things that you can think of that were major events in settling the Old West?
1: Oh, let's see. Uh, First of all, um, major events. I would see the land rush in Oklahoma is uh, one of them. I would say that... Farther west. Pardon me? Farther west. Farther west. How about the gold strike Uh, in California?
0: There we go. Okay. That's what we're going to talk about. Kind of the gold rush and uh, some of the things that happened there, so... Anyway, you know, uh, back east, the claims of the amount of gold to be found in California grew by leaps and bounds. Uh, Audiences heard of miners who were making $1,000 a day and some of them making $3,000 a day. In fact, one guy kind of made up a story. He said that there was a miner who sat on an 839-pound gold nugget for two months so that nobody would steal it from him. Well, people believed it. It was, a, it was a joke. But, you know, these are the things that kind of put the nation's common sense to sleep. Mm-hmm. And they heard of these huge uh, stories of uh, wealth just to be picked up, you know. And, and that's uh, so history would call them the 49ers. Uh, but in their day, they were known as the Argonauts. Mm. Now, have you heard that term before, Zeb?
1: Not regarding the miners, no.
0: Yeah, they that actually is a term I've read quite a few times, and I've never really thought much about it, but they were called the Argonauts uh, after the party of adventurers in the Greek myth who sailed with Jason and the Argonauts aboard the uh, ship Argo seeking uh, searching for the Golden Fleece. Oh. So, much like the Greek Voyagers of many years ago, many of the Latter-day Argonauts banded together by forming companies and associations. And Anyway, the companies sometimes were as small as 15 men or as large as 250, and they came in all shapes and sizes. There were all German companies, as well as those composed of maybe a bunch of Harvard students. Uh, One was made up of all Cherokee Indians, and another one was founded by a retired... uh, uh, patron of the Sing Sing prison, uh, but some associations took on a military type look, uh, complete with wearing uniforms and the blowing of bugles, and occasionally like martial drills, complete with bands. You know, I think when we think of the Forty Niners, we think of individuals, but as I just mentioned, they sometimes banded together in groups like this. So, but there were three ways to get to California from the East Coast. One route was by sea uh... to south america around cape horn to the pacific and up to california now another route was a combination of sea and land travel which meant sailing to either Panama or Nicaragua and trekking cross-country to the Pacific, where the gold uh, rushers boarded the ship bound for California. Mm -hmm. And the last route was overland across the western wilderness by means of, of course, several trails. And in the winter of 1849, the land passage to California was snow-covered and frozen. So the vast majority of of, uh, poor but adventurous gold seekers had to wait until after the spring thaw in the west. But for those who had the money, the sea routes uh, were pretty inviting and could be traveled immediately. And so I'm just going to talk about those first two methods of getting to California. So the advertised fare around Cape Horn was about $500, but frequently the actual amount was over $1,000. Now, a passenger could expect the average trip to take six months, although depending on the winds and the weather, the journey could be as short as four months or as long as eight months. And the fastest ships were the clipper ships, which regularly made the Boston to San Francisco run in 100 days. Wow. But the record of 89 days for the trip around Cape Horn was held actually for 135 years by the clipper ship the flying cloud and you may have
1: heard of that ship yeah when you bought a ticket on those uh, clipper ships or those other ships did that include all your meals and everything too
0: well we're going to talk about that
1: (laughs) okay i tell you what let's talk about that in a minute but this gives me an ideal time to talk about our new sponsor for doctor history how's that That's great. All right. Minicash of Sales with Zach and Joanne Hanson. My goodness, these are good people. And they've got literally everything. I mean, they're a retail business that offers you windows and doors, garage doors, lumber. And they've got all the uh, vinyl and the carpet and the metal siding. And then for those of us in the farm and ranching business, they've got tartar ranch and farm equipment. That is the good stuff. Let me tell you, panels, cattle handling equipment, tanks and waterers they've even got rodeo and arena equipment you'd better stop in and see them today zach and joanne hansen really nice people at 1321 east main in burley number to call 878-2091 they're right across from the burley airport really good folks at minicasha sales and they bring you doctor history
0: All right, we're going to continue on around Cape Horn. Okay. And, uh, you know, taking large amounts of baggage was a big advantage of the fast freight uh, clipper route to San Francisco. And this method of travel was preferable for those gold seekers who felt that they could not survive without all the comforts they were accustomed to in the East. Now, a young man by the name of Enos Christman... Uh, He was from Pennsylvania, and he was one of these travelers. Now, according to him, the well-prepared Argonaut, or gold seeker, needed at least five white Muslim shirts, five uh, vests, seven coats, 12 flannel shirts, 17 pairs of new heavy pantaloons, and 18 new checked shirts well that was unreasonable uh, upon arrival in san francisco he discovered that there was no way to transport let alone keep all these east coast necessities at the diggings, and so basically he gave most all of them away and this guy did keep one item which was pretty important he kept a journal of his adventures mm-hmm. uh, in fact a lot of the 49ers kept some sort of a record of the gold rush and it's from these notes and diaries that we get some of our information. So we're kind of glad that some of these guys could read and write. Absolutely. So, but uh, there was another group. There was 122 men of the Hartford Mining and Trading Company in Connecticut. And they were everything New, English, New Englanders should be. They were orderly. They were sober, hardworking, good citizens. They were excellent craftsmen, and nothing could not be either built or repaired by the assembled group of these Yankee 49ers. Well, on the journey aboard the ship Henry Lee, the skills of the company were tested. On March 11th, the Henry Lee was three weeks into her voyage to California, around Cape Horn, when a huge storm struck in the late evening. Well, none of these guys knew what to expect. Their only knowledge of the sea came from books stories but they awoke to find out that firsthand what a sea storm was really like uh, the New Englanders first reaction was panic as they tumbled out of their beds and tried to reach the hatchways and the wind tossed darkness all around them you know men were yelling and kind of screaming and uh, while others were kind of paralyzed with fear and, uh, and of course some of them were silently praying that they would make it and then came a, a sound a snapping tearing crashing sound well, in the next morning, uh, the Hartford company discovered the ship was still afloat, but the storm did not damage the hull, only the mast. Mm. Well, there were masses of canvas covering the deck along with tangled ropes and rigging and splintered wood. And as fearful as the farmers and blacksmiths and machinists and shoemakers and harness makers were in the evening... They were as uh, equally resolute in day. They knew what to do, uh, what had to be done. I see. So tours were unpacked and work began. and In twelve days, the masts were repaired, and uh, Henry Lee was running before the wind, bound for a stopover in Rio de Janeiro. Mm. So. Anyway, when it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, it's winter in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So not only did this mean winter conditions, which most of the Cape traveling Argonauts who set sail in the summer were unprepared for, it also meant incredibly stormy seas in the area around Cape Horn. Now, I've talked to guys that have uh, gone on cruises around that uh, southern tip and uh, I've heard some pretty horrific stories even in modern days of people on cruise ships uh, going around the southern tip of South America.
1: Now there have been many many ships lost in that area have there not?
0: Oh yeah uh, again the, the storms were uh, you know uh, probably some of the worst that you'd ever run into unless you were in a typhoon or a hurricane. Is it
1: because so. of the uh, proximity to the equator?
0: You know, the, the thing that I'm thinking is probably because it was summer here, it was winter down there. Yeah. And so that's when, of course, they got all their, their severe weather. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, these southern storms were as bad, if not worse, than the gale that struck the Henry Lee. And very few of the 49ers did any research on the conditions they would encounter on the way to San Francisco. So they were taken by surprise when they'd hit these 100-knot fierce, frigid winds that tossed their ship around like a bar of soap in a bathtub. But, you know, for the most part, the grueling aspects of the seaward journey to San Francisco were uh, bad food, seasickness. I mean, you can just imagine the seasickness uh, and the boredom. And you mentioned about food. Yeah, that was a problem uh, between stopovers because of the lack of refrigeration. Right. So. Uh, It was uh, kind of a strange food that the Argonauts ate on the open seas. And, of course, filling their stomach was the first order of business. But uh, there was some stuff, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, it's called lobscouse.
1: Oh, haven't you
0: ever had lobscouse? (laughs) Doesn't that sound just so inviting? (laughs) Oh, I'm running to the refrigerator (laughs) right now. Okay, well, let me describe it. Okay, lobscouse was a stringy... Paste made from salted meat, potatoes, and hard bread.
1: I'm not running to the refrigerator.
0: No, <laughs> you may run somewhere else. <laughs> now, there's another uh, uh, substance they called Husha McGrundy.
1: Husha McGrundy.
0: Husha McGrundy, and it provided more fiber with this mixture of seventy percent turnips and parsnips. Ugh. The rest of the concoction was made from ground codfish. Uh. Doesn't that just whet your appetite?
1: You know, and you know I've been suffering from the <laughs> flu the last couple of days <laughs> and you, my dear friend, have created a problem.
0: Okay, <laughs> okay. so don't eat any, eat any scouts or hushma grundy. Nope, not going to. No, no. And now sometimes when dessert was served it was a combination of hardtack cooked in molasses with raisins and cinnamon. Well, that's not too bad. No. Uh, when supplies ran low there was uh, three bean soup with each portion consisting of mostly water and three beans. Three beans. And three beans. That's why they call it three bean soup.
1: Three little beans. Beans, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, here again, when the water kind of got bad after being stored for several months, oh, boy. it attracted all kinds of insects and bugs, uh-huh. found their way into the soup. Uh, and so to kill the taste, if not the creepy things floating in the water, vinegar and molasses were added, and the potion was called switchel. 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 So now you got three things that you do not want to order on a menu. I see. Okay. So no wonder there was a lot of cases of seasickness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, so, you know, boredom also became kind of an unseen companion, and there was only so many sunrises and sunsets and moonrises that you can appreciate before you get a little bored. and. So when the passengers weren't betting on cards and checkers or poker, or, um, or what was being served for dinner or anything else the pass time, they would invent practical jokes to play on each other. And on some ships, the passengers' attention uh, kind of got focused on the cause of their frustration and the conditions aboard the ship and its captain. Uh-huh. Now, at the beginning of his journey, this young man that I mentioned, this Enos Christman, had nothing but glowing praise for his captain, but after six months at sea, he wrote in his journal, he said that this captain hardly had the capacity to take charge of a canal boat, let alone a ship. I see. He but didn't like him, in other words. He didn't like him yeah. by the end of six months. Yep. But now, uh, one month out of port, the Argonauts aboard the Pacific, the ship the Pacific, they were actually contemplating mutiny. And as an inducement to get first-class passengers bound for San Francisco to travel on the Pacific, the captain, his name was Tibbetts, promised that they would eat the same food that he and his first mate ate. No sooner did the ship sail than Tibbetts kind of backed out on that deal and fed the first-class passengers the same thing that everybody else got, which was gruel and some of these other things that I've mentioned. (sighs) So, feeling that they'd literally been taken for a ride, the passengers complained, and Tibbetts countered the protest by threatening to set fire to the powder of the magazine and send the ship to the bottom. Oh, my goodness. Not a great guy, uh, you know, friendly with the passengers. Captain Ahab! Yeah, here we go. So, but the protesters ceased their complaints, and... uh, Well, wouldn't you? ...in line, Tibbetts posted a notice declaring all troublemakers would be clamped in irons. Oh, my... Well, a month later, uh, Muni became the topic of discussion among the Argonauts aboard the Pacific, and it was sparked by the discovery of a cargo of cheese, butter, flour, pickles, and other such delicacies that were hidden in unmarked containers in the hold. You see, Tibbetts told the passengers that they would uh, be fed uh, you know these good provisions, but it turned out that he was just going to try to save them and sell them in San Francisco and make a really good profit well that dirty dog There's so, was all this good food in the hold, and he was uh, not telling anybody no so anyway, you know the passengers uh, found out about that they uh, were going to seize the ship, uh, they were going to mutiny and one thing or another, and anyway, they finally got to a port in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, the captain was basically kicked off. Uh, they got a new captain and were able to sail on in a little better condition. And he gave everybody a pickle. <laughs> he gave everybody a pickle. But, you know, not every ship had bad food or bad service. And, for example, uh, there was a ship called the Edward Ebert. Uh, offered delicacies like cheese and apple pie and plum pudding and Ooh. good accommodations. Uh, included a weekly paper. There were concerts. Uh as they had a police department, uh, on there the were not boat? many ships like that. Well now
1: so. well, let me ask you a question. Why couldn't they how far off the coast did most of those ships sail? I mean, why couldn't they just uh go to a near port and replenish their food supplies?
0: You know, that's a great question. And you know, it would seem logical that they there would be plenty of places yeah. all around South America that they could stop and and get food. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a good question, and I don't, I don't know the answer. But, hmm. So that talks about the, the guys going around the, the tip. Now, those who chose the sea land route across the isthmus of Panama, they had a different set of problems. Now, on a map, it looked like a quick and easy trip by ship uh, to short hop over land to Panama City and then, you know, an equally easy sail up to San Francisco. And what would really happen on this trip was anybody's guess because what you did is you paid your fare and took your chances, and it became kind of a gambler situation uh, because of the money you paid, and uh, you really didn't know what was going to happen.
1: So, in other words, you handed the guy the money. and you bought a fare on the ship but from that point on they could have used you as an anchor
0: sure oh yeah so here they are over the down there in in central america now initially the price for the trip to san francisco overland over the isthmus was about three hundred dollars but that was only the beginning uh, when they got to uh, the isthmus down there, uh, it was 54 miles uh, uh, or, well, about a 75-mile trip to Panama City oh, uh, by land.
1: Holy cow. And
0: the first part of it was by water, and they did that in dugout canoes, uh, and during the first few days, uh, the natives would charge $10 uh, for this privilege, and then, uh, of course, uh, they raised that up to about $40. And they paid 50 cents for a whole chicken, but then they had to pay $2 for a pot to cook it in. Well,
1: I'll bet you there were a lot of fights. (laughs) Yes. And I'll tell you you something else. That's where that, that,
0: that. So many ways to get across.
1: Yeah, that's where that Christmas song came from. Which one? All I want for isthmus is my two front teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: or something to eat. <laughs> but, you know, and think about this. Across that area, mosquitoes and disease-infested swamp. I mean, it was a seven-day Ooh. jungle journey, you know, filled with wildlife, cholera, dysentery, malaria, oh. yellow fever. Uh, and the Indians, the natives, uh, you know, they were kind of afraid of these guys at first, but uh, they, once they got used to them, then they would rent their mules and horses, and uh, the travelers used these animals to carry their baggage across. And uh, But once they got across, uh, I know we're running out of time here. Is that yeah, something? we are. We hurry and finish this up. But once they got across, sometimes there was no ship to take them up uh, to San Francisco. And so pretty soon, Panama City became almost like a... Uh, a gold mining town with tents and uh, people just trying to find a place to stay. And, of course, you can imagine what the sanitary conditions were like. There weren't any. <laughs> there weren't any. And, uh, anyway, it was just, a, you know, uh, they, they were bored. They would get drunk. They would have fights. There was illnesses. Um, it's just like being on this program. City. Yeah. And a lot of them got sick. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and a lot of them died, actually, down there before they even got to California. Holy cow. So, again, you know, trying to find a ship to take them up uh, to uh, California. And some of the unscrupulous captains would land there, and maybe they had a ship that would carry 250, and they would put three or 400 guys on there just stack them and pack them, you know? Yeah,
1: stack them and pack them, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, anyway, uh, one thing led to another, but they finally, you know, a lot of these guys finally made it up. Now, another land route was some of the people actually uh, went through the Gulf of Mexico through Mexico up to California. Really? Yeah. But, you know, by the end of the year, the population of California had risen from 26,000 up to about 115,000. And of the 89,000, about 41,000 had taken the sea route uh, and passed through to San Francisco.
1: Holy cow, i got to run, I'm late. I know. uh, That was an interesting story. So in other words, to get from there, to get to here, was really a task.
0: Yeah, it really was. Now, keep in mind also, a lot of the ships that got to San Francisco, all the crew would abandon ship to go look for gold. So they had a whole bunch of ships. Uh, Sitting in San Francisco Bay They just rotted away Why, they were Ship Out of luck (laughs) (laughs) They were out of luck I gotta run run.